Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, addressing pelvic floor disorders in women. Overall, we do know that things kind of worsen with age. The other risk factors are things like uh, obesity, smoking, as well as genetics and sort of a familial predisposition. Plus, common urologic disorders in children. The difference between the two is that from what we know, retractile testicles don't have any of the same long-term consequences as undescended testicles do. And what you need to know about erectile dysfunction. That has gone full circle. So about 10 years ago, they said, hey, replacing the testosterone will improve an erection. And now they're sort of going back saying it's not terribly helpful. Our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse. And that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, the field of urology is our focus as we take a look at some common urologic conditions in kids. Plus, we'll get some important information about erectile dysfunction and what you need to know. But first, pelvic floor disorders in women. Pelvic floor dysfunction. It's a common problem among women and it's strongly linked to both childbirth and to aging. It can cause many symptoms and it can have some troubling consequences. So here to help us understand what these are and what can be done about them is Dr. Natasha Ginsberg. She's assistant professor of urology and the director of female pelvic medicine and surgery. Welcome, Dr. Ginsburg. Thanks for coming in. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin by helping us understand what we mean when we talk about the pelvic floor. What is that? It's, the pelvic floor is actually a, a, a difficult concept, I think, for a lot of people to understand. But it's basically the hammock that kind of holds all your organs. And men have a pelvic floor and women have a pelvic floor. But particularly for women, it's the hammock that holds the bladder, the vagina, and the rectum kind of in position, kind of at the bottom part of your of your abdomen. And that hammock is comprised of musculature? I mean, is it basically muscles that pr create that support? Yeah, there, there are a few different levels of muscles, and there's also a connective tissue, which is called fascia, which is a thick, strong, kind of rope-like tissue that, that keeps everything in position and, and protects your organs um, from gravity, ultimately. So basically, why is it important? I mean, what, what happens when this when something goes wrong with it. Mm -hmm. So the, the pelvic floor uh, is a complex structure, and the purpose of it is, one, to kind of keep everything in place, but also needs to be able to relax and to tighten in order to permit sort of normal activities. And that includes things like voiding and defecation. It needs to relax in order to be able to have babies. It needs to tighten in order to be able to prevent urine or stool from coming out. When and it's not supposed to. Exactly, exactly. And so um, it's it has to work in relation with your other muscles and with the brain and with the nerves in order to keep everything in place. And meanwhile, it also is fighting gravity most of the time because we're upright, um, standing or sitting. And so there are muscles there that have to always be tonically contracted in order to keep things in position. So when we talk about pelvic floor disorders, that sounds like it could be a very large category. What are the kinds of problems that we're talking about? It is, it is. And there are a lot of different things that can go wrong with the pelvic floor. Um, in general, when we talk about disorders, we talk about things that have to do with urination. So often that's related to something like urinary incontinence or the inability to hold urine. It can be related to prolapse of the organs through the vagina, and that can be either the bladder or the uterus or the rectum. When you say prolapse, explain that a bit more. So that's essentially when those fascia, that tight ligament, when it becomes weak, the organs can actually fall forward or um, down through the vagina. So the vagina almost turns itself inside out because the organs are kind of falling through. It's essentially a hernia of the pelvic floor. Mm -hmm. And are there others as well? You were starting to mention, and I then, interrupted you. Oh no, the other um, 
Other disorders can be loss of stool and the inability to retain stool or even the inability to hold in uh, flatulence. And then finally, we oftentimes deal with people who have pain or trouble with the relaxation of their pelvic floor. Sort of the opposite problem of having things fall through is the problem of being too tight. Interesting. So who basically is most at risk? I, I alluded to this in my introduction, that it's often associated with childbirth or with increased age. Tell us a bit more about that. Explain that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, depending on the type of pelvic floor disorder, there are different risk factors. Overall, we do know that things kind of worsen with age. So rates of urinary incontinence increase with age. The risk of prolapse or the organs kind of falling through worsen with age. Um, the other risk factors are things like uh, obesity, smoking is a big risk factor, as well as genetics and sort of a familial predisposition. There are certain medical problems that can predispose you to this, but I would say probably the number one inciting factor is childbirth. So the, just from having gone through childbirth, and I have had that experience, mm -hmm. all of the pressure of carrying the pregnancy and then delivering a, a child vaginally probably stretches things quite a bit. Exactly, exactly. And and we find that um, vaginal deliveries, even more so than cesarean sections, but both do contribute to the laxity and tearing of those the muscles and that fascia. And when they become weak, it's much more likely that things start to shift around and move, and then you're at higher risk for some of these disorders. So how do you know, I mean, you alluded to what the nature of some of them are. What are some of the symptoms? I mean, is it, do you feel pain quite often, or is it mostly like loss of the ability to control certain things? It can be either, it can be both. So when we talk about urinary incontinence, that's the loss of urine when you don't mean to. So when the urine is coming out, whether it happens when you're coughing or sneezing or exercising, or sometimes it may come out when you feel like you have to go and you're walking to the bathroom and you just can't quite make it in time, that would be a sign of urinary incontinence. In terms of the prolapse or the organs falling through, sometimes people refer to that as a dropped bladder. And usually women will feel a pressure or a bulge or something doesn't feel quite right inside the vagina. They may have pain with intercourse. And then with fecal incontinence, loss of stool, same kind of thing. It's uh, the inability to retain the stool and to, to go when you want to, and then or the stool comes out when it's not supposed to, when it's unexpected. Are there also elements of, does constipation play a role too? In other words, can you have the exact opposite of what we were just talking about, which is you know, loss of control. Absolutely, absolutely. And and what's complicated about the pelvic floor is that we have a number of different organs there and they all work inter interrelatedly. So constipation can actually contrib can contribute to urinary incontinence. Hmm. The pelvic floor being too tight can contribute to constipation, so the inability to relax and to allow the stool to come out. Um, and pelvic organ prolapse, so if things have kind of fallen forward, can contribute to both constipation and also the inability to urinate, to be able to pass your urine. So they're really all interrelated in some way, but largely it's, it's, it sounds like it's mostly an environmental or an aging. As you said, there are some potential family history tendencies toward it, but it's not something where there's something mal, some real malfunction in the body. No, that no. is the source of it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we know that this is something that can happen with age. Incontinence can happen at any age, but it definitely increases. And things like prolapse, pelvic organ prolapse, are more likely to happen as you get older. Now, it's not something that's a foregone conclusion. Just because you're older doesn't mean you will have incontinence or prolapse. But we do know that people who are older are more likely to have those issues. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with urologist Dr. Natasha Ginsberg. We're talking about pelvic floor dysfunction. So briefly, how is it diagnosed? In other words, how do you determine? I mean, you, you obviously have the symptoms, and then you know something is wrong, but how do you actually diagnose the nature of the problem or what's causing it specifically? Yeah. You know, the most basic technique is just like any physician is a, is a detailed history, understanding what's been going on and what causes things, what are the triggers, and then a physical exam. And so when you come to my office for one of these symptoms, part of the physical exam will include a pelvic exam to get a good sense of what is going on with those muscles and the fascia. Can we sense a weakness? Can we see things falling down? Can we see the leakage of urine? 
And then there are sort of more involved testing that kind of look at the function of the bladder or the function of the pelvic floor muscles. Sometimes we have to look inside the bladder with the camera. Those things may or may not be necessary, sort of depending on what we find on physical exam. So once you've you determine that someone does have pelvic floor dysfunction in some way, leading to all of these, you know, several problems, what treatment options are available for people? For example, for something like in stress incontinence, yeah, which I, is basically, as you mentioned, coughing, sneezing, that kind of thing. What, exactly. What are, the, what are the primary treatments and ones that are most effective? So I think what's really great about the treatments that we have pretty much across the board for our pelvic floor disorders is that we can move from things that are less invasive, that are easier to do, to things that are more invasive. And so in terms of incontinence, whether it's stress incontinence or urge incontinence, we can often start with things like changing around your behaviors, changing around the foods and the drinks that you put in your body because they can affect the way the bladder functions. We can also do pelvic floor exercises and that um, commonly is referred to as Kegels. Now I would say that many women are doing their Kegels incorrectly. And so we can go through teaching on how to appropriately do the Kegels. And then we have a great group of physical therapists here that are specialized in pelvic floor work and can really help women to focus on their muscles and to really get a good sense of what they're doing and to help them improve the way they're exercising their pelvic floor. So if, in fact, someone's motivated to do so, is can that really reverse their symptoms and I mean even at let's say a more advanced age can you really you know if you let's say you've let yourself go so to speak (laughs) you know uh, for many 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 years I mean can you start to exercise and see a change absolutely absolutely and so I think a lot of women are scared to come to a urologist one because maybe they're embarrassed uh, or this is such a sensitive topic but the other fear is that they think, oh, I'm going to have to have surgery to fix this. And that's absolutely not the case. Now, we know that the earlier we start with sort of the muscle training, just like any kind of exercise, the better it'll be in the long run. But there's always ways to increase the muscle that you have and to help with some of the problems that are going on. How about techniques that are um, more kind of um, complementary, like something like biofeedback or something of that nature? Does that play a role and is it successful? Yeah. So, you know, what we generally find is that we start with sort of the least, less invasive types of things like the changes in your diet, potentially doing exercises, physical therapy, adjuncts to physical therapy are biofeedback. So what that is, is where when you're doing the exercises, you're, um, there is a machine that actually measures how well you're contracting your muscles. You can see it on a TV screen or a computer screen. So you can really get direct feedback about what your body is doing. And then you know we try these things for a while and many people have good success with those. And if that's not working, then we move on to either things like medications, other therapies. And then if those still aren't working, then we would talk about surgical options. So let's back up a minute. When you talk about medications, what kinds of medications are usually recommended? Yeah. So do, and do they have potential side effects, for yeah, example? Yeah, of course. So uh, all medications have some side effect. Unfortunately, we don't have one that's perfect that works without having any side effects. And it depends on the specific pelvic floor disorder, what type of medication is appropriate. For things like urge incontinence, which is that leakage of urine when you're running to the bathroom and you don't make it. We have a series of medications that can help to relax the bladder so the bladder stretches a little bit more, is able to hold a little bit more urine so that you're not running as frequently. In terms of things like uh, fecal incontinence and inability to, to hold the stool in, there's certain types of bulking agents or uh, basically things to harden up the stool so that it doesn't come out quite as easily. When we talk about things like stress incontinence, there are less medications that are helpful with that. So that's that leakage when you cough or sneeze. And that's where the Kegels exactly, exactly. play a stronger role. So are there, do relaxation techniques play a role here? You were talking about that. Just a, I don't want to run out of time, but help us with understanding yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. So for the people whose pelvic floors are too tight, relaxation techniques and, again, physical therapy are really excellent. And, we, again, we have medications that can help be an adjunct to those things. And some people whose pelvic floors are very tight have a problem with chronic pelvic pain. Um, And they may also have a problem with leakage of urine because if their pelvic muscles are too tight, when it's time to have to go, they can't tighten anymore. So what they need to do is learn to relax the pelvic floor so that they have that give and stretch and and to be able to tighten when the time is, is 
nigh. Very interesting. So let's get to surgery because clearly you said that is kind of your last resort, but what what kinds of procedures do you do and, and are they in very highly invasive? Is they minimally invasive? Tell us a little bit, very little bit of time. Okay, so mostly I try to focus on minimally invasive options for patients. Depending on what their pelvic floor disorder, there are different surgical options. Um, in general, in terms of stress incontinence, that can be a procedure that it's usually a outpatient procedure, you come in the morning, go home the same day. And that would either help to strengthen that lost fascia that was now weakened after childbirth, or to try to bulk the urethra in order to prevent the urine from kind of leaking out. When we talk about prolapse, it's basically surgery to kind of pull things back up and put them back in the position where they belong. So what's the prognosis basically when someone's been treated either with some of these other diseases or uh, other techniques or through surgery? Yeah, so people have very good outcomes. You know, depending on where they start, uh, their outcomes, they can have improvement anywhere from 50 to, we have almost 100% success rates with certain types of um, modalities. But it very much depends on the individual and their motivation and what we're able to do for them. Well, very helpful, very interesting information. Thanks so much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Natasha Ginsberg, Assistant Professor of Urology, specializing in adult urology, general female urologic health, and reconstructive urology. Next up, important information about erectile dysfunction and what you need to know. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, since the 1990s, there's been an increasing recognition that erectile dysfunction, also known as ED, is a common problem. Well, here with more on all of this is Dr. J.C. Trussell. He's Associate Professor of Urology at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Trussell. Thanks so much for coming in. Glad to be here. So let's start by just defining this. What exactly do we mean when we use the term erectile dysfunction? Yes, that's been uh, defined actually by the uh, NIH and National Institutes of Health as the consistent inability to obtain or maintain an erection satisfactory uh, for sexual function, satisfactory for either the partner or or their patient. So if somebody's unhappy with their erectile quality, uh, they could feel like they should come see a urologist for treatment and diagnosis. So is there a period of persistence that's also required? In other words, if you have an erratic or an occasional problem like this, is that the same as perhaps having it for a consistent period of time? Or is there is there a guideline there? There is no guideline for timing of the inconsistent erection. So it can be the first time uh, that occurs. They sh- uh, could seek some help or if it's not getting better, because uh, sometimes there are some situational uh, circumstances that cause a temporary loss of erectile quality, and that can be self-remedied. Uh, so how common is it actually? I mean, I mentioned in the beginning of the introduction that people are recognizing that it is more common. It was obviously something that wasn't to be discussed. It's never um, 0%, so it can happen in younger people. Uh, but generally, after 40 years of age, you take that person's age, and that's the percentage of people who will have erectile difficulty, not complete erectile loss. That's consistently 10% of clients 40 years or older, but uh, 40% of 40-year-olds are going to have some degree of difficulty, 60% of 60-year-olds, and so on. Wow. If you Following adjustment for age, though, clearly that's, that's a case. Are there other problems that people have that could also play a role or co-occur with erectile dysfunction? Yes, stacked on top of uh, age, which none of us can do anything about, obviously, are other comorbid issues that will affect the, the nerves and the blood supply to the, to the uh, penis, uh, such things as diabetes, uh, high cholesterol, surgery, radiation, anything that can mess up the nerves or arteries in the pelvis. Even high blood pressure. High blood like pressure, that. yep. Right. So what exactly, we talk about symptomatology, what exactly is the person experiencing? They often, there's two types of erectile dysfunction. One is a lack of uh, adequate blood flow, arterial blood flow into the penis. Those will typically have 
a, a non-erection or a soft erection um, going forward. There's another one where the veins exiting the, the penis get kinked off like kinking a garden hose. And if those veins are not kinked off adequately, a person will get a moderate to good erection, but then it tends to fade away shortly uh, after the erection has started. So they'll complain of uh, an erection that, that loses its power after a, cu a couple minutes. Does reduced sexual desire also qualify as a symptom, or is it often just a response to? That is a, a comorbid or a concurrent problem. So when guys come in and describe erectile dysfunction, I have to be careful to determine if it's a, a low sexual drive. It could be uh, premature ejaculation or rapid ejaculation, which is treated completely different than the topic that we're discussing today. Um, and it, some guys have a low libido, a low sexual drive, and then we should check that uh, by blood tests, and that's treated also in a different fashion than treating erectile dysfunction. But when we get back to ED or erectile dysfunction, let's just run through a brief kind of um, overview in terms of the different physical causes that could play a role. Because, there, I mean, like you mentioned, things like heart disease, diabetes. Does obesity play a role there as well in terms of a comorbidity? Indirectly, obesity can play a role. Uh, as guys uh, become more obese, they have a breakdown of the testosterone into a higher level of estradiol, and that will chemically... Uh, cause a reduction in their libido and sexual drive. There is no direct cause of a low testosterone on erectile dysfunction, although this has been debated in the literature. Um, it's also a big part of what current advertising is in terms of people having them check their testosterone level as being causative for ED. Yeah, that has gone full circle. So about 20 years ago, they were saying they, meaning the literature, was saying that testosterone had no effect on sexual function or erections. Then about 10 years ago, they said, hey, replacing the testosterone will improve an erection. And now they're sort of going back saying it's not terribly helpful. It doesn't hurt to try if somebody qualifies for testosterone replacement, uh, but it's, it will not directly uh, improve your erections. How about things that there are other disease entities like multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's or um, even sleep disorders? Do those all con potentially contribute as well? They certainly can contribute. Um, for instance, I have um, young men, 20s, 30s, trying to have a baby, and they have such stress and anxiety for that event of trying to have a baby that, that they come and report no erections or very limited erections, and they will, in that case, be temporarily on an adjunct such as a, a pill like Viagra, Levitra, Cialis to help them through that time of stress. That's very interesting. We'll talk about treatment um, a bit later, but you just alluded to something that was my next question, actually, which is what role does psychology or the psychological state of being play? In other words, does depression play a role? Does anxiety play a role, or to what degree? That's one question I do ask in uh, the clients with ED. If there was a specific event or time that the erectile difficulty occurred, there could be a new medical condition like a recent heart attack or a recent stroke. Uh, more socially, there could be a change in relationship, um, a new partner. Uh, so clearly anxiety with a new partner or change in relationship can cause erectile dysfunction. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with urologist Dr. J.C. Trussell, and we're talking about erectile dysfunction. So what are the consequences of this in terms of the person's life? I mean, you know, when they're suffering from that, what exactly does it lead to? These men often describe uh, low self-esteem, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, situational anxiety if they're um, in, in a situation where they're anticipating uh, a relationship during that day, uh, they, they might try to avoid that situation. Uh, some, the lucky ones have a supportive partner that will help them through these times and through the treatment. Some of these treatments uh, might work better with, with partner involvement. Uh, so if the partner can be supportive, that really helps these guys respond more quickly to, to interventions and treatment. So it's, it's interesting because while stress and anxiety or depression could be causative, even if they weren't there prior to the occurrence, often they follow having this experience. So they're pretty much wrapped in it in some way. It's the, fully wrapped together. The correct. emotions. So how do you make the diagnosis? What do you do? Well, generally, if, if somebody complain, uh, reports that they're not 
satisfied with their erection, that's all that's necessary to to diagnose erectile dysfunction and to then treat them. Um, more pointed with their past medical history, we check about heart disease, uh, anything that will, uh, such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, check on depression, and make sure they've not had radiation or surgery to, to the pelvis. Um, so we go through a litany of questions. Those, unfortunately, uh, are often done and in the past, and we just have to work around that. There are some medications even, like beta blockers, medications that end in OL, like labetalol, atenolol. Those uh, are often so good at preventing heart heart attacks and future heart disease that we have to work around it. But there's others, uh, like anti-anxiety medicines, Paxil and Prozac, uh, that can, can maybe be adjusted and if removed or lowered the dose, erectile quality can return. That's very important, I think. So you really do look at all these potentially contributing factors and what medications and what other interventions have taken place that could be contributing to the current problem. You're right. And then you try to adjust accordingly. So it's obviously not one size fits all in terms of treatment. Tell me a little bit about what the most common and most effective treatments are today. There's a three-tiered treatment algorithm that we go through. If uh, the first tier is oral agents, uh, like Viagra Levitra Cialis, those are for uh, clients who do not have nitroglycerin. That's a strict contraindication because that will cause, uh, when combined, uh, vasodilation and passing out and, and difficulties in that regard. So who are those patients who use nitroglycerin? Just remind us, are those with angina? I mean... Yeah, usually with angina uh, or a recent uh, heart attack, uh, pain with, with exercise, uh, some of those clients are not qualified to start uh, physical activity, and those clients need to see their cardiologist to be cleared for activity uh, such as uh, sexual activity and, and other activities uh, for that matter. Those high-risk clients are those with a recent heart attack within two weeks, unstable angina, or uncontrolled high blood pressure. And short of those problems, for the most part, are most people, let's say men over 40, able to take these other drugs that you mentioned? Yes, and there's no restriction to their sexual activity. So um, basically, those have been, tell me about their efficacy and what you found in practice. Do they solve the problem in most cases? Yes, about 70% of uh, clients will respond uh, adequately to, to the pills. And if they don't respond, we can often try a different pill that, that when taken correctly or when, when changed out, will allow uh, the 30% of non-responders to have some response, probably another 10%. So that's a pretty high ratio <clears throat> in terms of the efficacy of, of oral medications. Yes, it's uh, the first line because it's uh, pretty effective and, and works well with a few side effects of uh, occasional headache and facial flushing, but generally well tolerated. So in your experience... Just take us through. What a, a patient comes to you. You do the. You do your do your due diligence. You do a physical, or you just take the history, and then you decide that this person truly has ED, and you're going to give them the oral medications. In your experience, is that you know what's the next step? In most cases, does that work? And if not, where do you go from there? That'll work in seventy percent of uh, patients. I have them come back and see me uh, if it's not working in, in a few months, and. Uh, Step one, as I mentioned, is pills. Step two, tier two, is uh, other interventions like a vacuum device or an injectable agent. There is a little suppository that goes in the tip of the penis called MUSE, M-U-S-E. Uh, and anywhere along this spectrum, uh, if there is a concern that the patient has about anxiety or depression, we can always have uh, mental health uh, providers uh, help them out. If the uh, second line or second tier intervention it doesn't work or is not appreciated by the patient. The third line, the last line is uh, surgery where we would implant a penile prosthesis, sort of like an artificial knee for knee pain, but this is a prosthetic that causes the phallus, the penis, to be rigid uh, when they desire for sexual activity. But is that, does it create rigidity all the time, or do they have the option? Does it kind of function along with natural variability or natural desire? The most common prosthesis is uh, one that is uh, filled with saline. There's a reservoir that's tucked in next to the bladder like a balloon, and there's a pump in the scrotum like a third testicle. All this is hidden under the skin, and that pump 
allows fluid, the saline, to be transferred into sleeves that are in the penis, making it hard. And then after sexual activity, that pump has a release valve where the fluid drains from the penis back into the reservoir tucked by the bladder. So does that, what's the efficacy of that in your experience? Does that work well for the patients who are most appropriate for it? That works uh, quite well. The uh, satisfaction rate for the patient is 92%. So nine, nine out of 10 clients will be very happy with the penile implant. And the satisfaction rate for their partners is about uh, 90%, nine, 9 out of 10 as well. Okay, we have only a little bit of time left. What's the bottom line? What do you tell people? I mean, in terms of if they find themselves in this circumstance? Erectile dysfunction is common, very common. It's quite treatable. And uh, although in the past we've done a lot of workup to figure out if it's the blood flow in or the venous leaking out of the penis, no vascular surgery works, uh, so we no longer do that extensive workup. So you're not even doing surgery. So you're basically offering these three tiers, and it sounds like you get a pretty good response across the board There's to a very, one of those three. That's exactly right. Very helpful, very important information, and I'm sure it can alleviate a lot of anxiety. And clearly the, the point of the psychology involved shouldn't be ignored and the importance of the working along with a sexual partner. That's correct. Thank you so much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. J.C. Trussell. He's Associate Professor of Urology at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Fighting fire with fire, or waking up as a lighthouse. Well, folks, in college, I did a cool visual perception experiment everybody can do. You sit in a brightly lit room at night, close one eye, cover it with your hand, keep the other eye open. Do that for five minutes. Then, still with the same eye covered, go outside to the darkest spot you can find. Look around. See what you see. Then, Cover that eye that's been open the whole time and open the other one. You'll be amazed by how much more you can see with the formerly covered eye because it's what we call dark adapted. The whole world looks different. We're able to see so much more in much less light. It's a wow moment. Now, Just imagine that we could do something similar in relationships. Well, turns out we can, using our emotions, our feelings as information. They can help us see, or rather feel, more dimensions to our social interactions. We psychologists call this emotional and social intelligence. Of course, it isn't quite that simple because sometimes our feelings are dramatically out of tune with what's going on around us. They come from what we think is happening rather than from what is actually happening. More about that key difference some other day, but for now, a couple of tips. While we don't have much, if any, control over other people's behavior, we can pay more attention to what we are feeling when they, and we, Do whatever we do. And here's a tip. Instead of responding to negative behavior with a negative response, fire to fire, we can choose to respond with curiosity and kindness. We can get curious about what's happening emotionally in the other person, that they're doing what they're doing. And we can be steadfast in bringing compassion and positivity. Knowing, of course, What goes around, comes around. Bonus tip, it also helps in changing our own behavior if we set a specific goal, if we imagine how we want to act in advance. The other day I woke up realizing that my goal is to bring some positive energy and action to every interaction I have. And didn't an image pop up of what I want to be, like a lighthouse. I want to bring light to every relationship, every talk, even, yeah, even every committee meeting I go to. (laughs) Now, that's ambitious. So I've started imagining myself as a lighthouse, not a flamethrower, a lighthouse, bringing light even in the darkest moments, especially 
in the darkest moments. Impossible, yes. Grandiose, possibly. A worthy goal, absolutely. And I'm finding more and more possible with practice. At least if we can't bring light, we can stop bringing fire. I'm Dr. Rich, Lighthouse Head O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. up next, some common neurologic disorders in kids. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, when it comes to problems in the genitourinary systems of children, there are some that are the result of birth defects, but others can arise during early development. Here to fill us in on the most common ones that affect children is Dr. Matthew Mason. He's Assistant Professor of Pediatric Urology at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Mason. Thanks so much for coming in. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. So let's begin by reviewing some of what are the most common problems that you see in children. What's, what's the one that stands out in your mind? So I think one thing we can certainly spend some time talking about that we see a lot of are undescended testicles. Why, first of all, let's define what that means. Sure. So an undescended testicle, a testicle is supposed to, uh, it develops within the abdomen, and usually before birth it has come down from the abdomen through a little canal, a little channel in the groin region into the scrotum. And in some studies, up to 3%, as much as 3% of baby boys are born with a testicle, not in the scrotum, either somewhere stuck along the, the route down into the scrotum, or even somewhere where it missed the mark completely, and it's in a completely wrong location. Does it usually just happen with one it, of it, the two? It typically does just happen with one of the two, but often we will see where it is both. And uh, there can be a, a varying severity as to how far undescended or how far stuck along the way it is. And in certain circumstances, it can be as extreme as a child born that looks like a male but has no apparent testicles whatsoever. So the scrotum is basically atrophied or not It, it can look like a normal scrotum that's empty or it can sometimes look very flat. And actually that can sometimes lead to a very serious concern that this may be a newborn that looks male but isn't actually male and that and that actually is sometimes a very urgent very uh, immediate and serious health risk because it can be associated with other conditions with with serious life-threatening consequences. Well, we can talk about some of that a bit later but yeah. tell me a little bit more do we know what causes this or who is most at risk for these kinds of problems? You know, unfortunately, like a lot of things I deal with, we get asked that question a lot by parents. Is it something that I did? Is it something that we could have done differently? And and we really just honestly don't know. And so if you had to pick one answer, I would say it's random. There are certainly genetic factors and, and some environmental factors. But for example, in identical twins, the rate of undescended testicle from one to the next is only around 30%. So it's not purely genetic. Uh, you can have a father who had an undescended testicle and the children may or may not. But there seem to be some associations with things like smoking during pregnancy, alcohol use during pregnancy, certain medications that are advised against by obstetricians during pregnancy. But none of these things are absolute. So again, we usually tell people it's it's usually mostly a random event. How about with children who are born early, like preterm births? Absolutely. So whereas I said three percent of baby boys, that's that's the that's the statistic for full term, otherwise normal birth weight baby boys. If you look at the population of premature or very low birth weight infants, it can be in some, some reports up to 45% of these infants can be born with a testicle not in the scrotum. And does that suggest that since it's a developmentally occurring process and the baby is born or taken sometimes before he's a, he or, well, he has gone through his full gestational 
development, that that may be the reason why. Absolutely. You know, it may just be purely a time factor for some of these infants, but the testicle often will have descended by somewhere early on in the third trimester. And these premature infants are born later than that, but still have undescended testicles. So what you mentioned, it may be sort of a symptom of a overall developmental issue as a whole. Very interesting. So Basically, well, first of all, there's, is there some distinction here between an undescended testicle and one that kind of pulls back? Absolutely. So, so a truly undescended testicle is a different entity from what we consider a retractile testicle. And there's a lot of terminology out there. But basically what we're trying to distinguish between the two, an undescended testicle is a testicle that will not develop appropriately because it's stuck in a location where it's not in the correct environment. What we call a retractile testicle is something that we see quite a bit of as well, is a testicle that can reach the scrotum, will sit in the scrotum if the patient or if the child is relaxed, but has a very strong muscular reflex that can pull it up and out of the scrotum so that when you go to examine the child or subject them to ultrasound or imaging uh, technique or something like this to try to figure out where the scrotum is or the testicle is, just by the fact that you're trying to find it, it can pull up and look like it's undescended. The The difference between the two is that from what we know, retractile testicles don't have any of the same long-term consequences as undescended testicles do. So that leads me to the basic important question here is, what are the complications or consequences of an undescended testicle? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, certainly maybe the most scary consequence is that children born with an undescended testicle have a higher chance of later in life developing testicular cancer. And testicular cancer is a very rare cancer in men at baseline, but anyone with a history of undescended testicle, whether or not it's ever been managed, have at least twice that risk. And if they have a testicle that remains in the wrong place after they go through puberty, the risk can be anywhere from five to eight times the baseline So basically, um, does it ever kind of descend spontaneously in some of these children? Yes, definitely does. And in fact, up to maybe 50% of the the full term, the, the... the normal full-term newborns, it can up to about 45 to 50% of the time, it will come down on its own. But from what we know, it only has a chance to do that by six months of age. So then basically, what is the management of this? And what do you recommend to people? And is it the kind of thing that a normal pediatrician or primary care physician understands and knows how to manage? Typically so. I mean, it's it's basically standard practice for pediatricians, family medicine providers, primary care providers to examine the, bo- the boy, the infant at, or child at every well child visit to make sure that the testicles are in normal location and feel normal. And if ever, the, the current recommendation, which is we have some very good recommendations that were published just a couple years ago, Uh, The current recommendation is if there's any child who's at least six months of age and in a preterm infant, you have to correct that for any prematurity. But any child who's reached six months of age and the testicle is not in the correct location, they should be referred to a surgical specialist like myself or my partner. Um, And furthermore, any child who previously had a testicle in the right place and now beyond six months of age, it's no longer in the right place. Again, any question there should be referred to a specialist. So the kind of expertise, whether it means surgical intervention, and there are a variety of interventions, really requires someone with a little bit more highly trained, specialized knowledge then. Yeah. In terms of man- actual management of this. Correct. I, you know, and, and it's it's a very difficult thing to tell families because they're waiting on a referral to see the specialist and they don't know what's coming. Um, and it's all of the management is purely based on what is witnessed a physical examination of the child. And that's that can be very subtle. And it took me, you know, many, many years of training to feel comfortable to where I can say this child does or does not need surgery. And unfortunately, in today's day and age, what we found is that all of the sort of 
imaging techniques, ultrasound, what have you, are very unreliable in determining who does or does not need surgery. So it relies on a physical exam. It, it does. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with pediatric urologist Dr. Matthew Mason. We're talking about common pediatric uro- urology problems, but specifically we've been talking about an undescended testicle. I want to be able to get on to at least one other of these problems, but just what's the prognosis then if treated? Well, <clears throat> so the other thing we didn't mention is the, the association with fertility problems. And what we know is that even as early as 18 months of age, if the testicles left in the wrong place, there becomes issues at a cellular level. Developmentally, the testicle does not develop properly, and long-term, it may affect the overall fertility of the patient. If appropriately managed where the testicle is placed in the scrotum by about 18 months of age, Uh, You maximize the potential for fertility, you minimize the risks for cancer, and in a patient like that, you know, they do have an increased risk of testicular cancer long-term, but it may only be twice that of the general population. And in a patient with just one undescended testicle, from what we can see long-term, they have normal ability to have children in terms of if you look at the rates of men trying to have children and how many actually can father a child. One undescended testicle seems to be as good as a normal person versus two undescended testicles. It's down to about 65%. But we do everything we can at an early age to try to maximize their fertility potential. And largely that's done through surgery in most cases. That's correct. In most cases, it it needs to be done through surgery. I don't want to run out of time. I want to move on to one other thing that actually, as I was researching for our conversation, really surprised me. And that as a pediatric urologist, you're actually looking at prenatal problems. In other words, while the infant mm-hmm. is or the neonate is still developing in the womb. Tell us about that. What what kinds of things are you finding and what can you manage? So a very common finding in pregnant women and up to three or four percent of pregnancies can have an abnormal appearance of the kidneys or kidney of the fetus. And so a lot of times this is sort of within the scope of what obstetricians know how to manage, but sometimes they can pick up something a little more severe and it creates a lot of anxiety for the family. Uh, And sometimes decisions need to be made about is something, uh, is it important enough to make a decision about how to manage the pregnancy? And so, you know, you can find the most common thing we find is urinary Uh, in an increased amount of urine that sits in the kidney, what we call hydronephrosis. And you'll find this in babies, and it varies in severity very significantly. And you're talking about while they are basically in utero, you're using a pediatric ultrasound or an ultrasound to determine this, and this is a finding that's subsequent to normal ultrasounds that are done throughout the pregnancy. This is typically picked up at around 20 weeks gestation when women have their sort of what they call anatomy scan, and they'll find an abnormal appearance kidney. And in, in certain cases, this can be representative of very severe disease that may go on to need surgery. In extreme circumstances, we may recommend intervening during the pregnancy or even making the pregnancy a little shorter by inducing labor earlier. Uh, but most of the time, these are things that are things that the child can grow out of or can have uh, non-surgical management. And so it creates a lot of anxiety. And we you know, are happy and we encourage being able to talk to these women during their pregnancy so they at least know what to expect. And in most cases, that's all that it takes. Really? So it sounds to me like a lot of these kinds of issues really are not, um, really require a certain amount of expertise beyond perhaps even the standard urological training, in your case, going into pediatric urology. And is it, it's not that, is it a common thing to find pediatric urologists? You know, there, there are not too many in this area. Certainly in, in, in upstate New York, there are pediatric urologists in Albany, Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo. But between those areas, I don't think you're going to find very many. So unfortunately, we do have patients that have to make a several hour drive to come and see us. Uh, but there are, the, there, are, there are two of us here in Syracuse. And, you know, it's just a matter of there aren't that many places in the country that train these people. There's only about 25 to 30 pediatric urologists trained in the United States per year. And you basically did, you were here for medical school. I was. Went elsewhere for your training and decided to kind of come back. Come on back home. We're quite lucky to have you coming back. Thank Thank you you so much. So how can people reach you if they would like to reach you and and get, you know, learn more about your services? I think the, the easiest way for either a patient or a potential patient or 
or a primary care provider to get more information or, or contact us would be just call our office. It's 315-464-6060. That's 6060. 6060. That's the pediatric urology office. We're a small group, so everybody knows everybody, and we're we're right here on the phone. Well, thank you so much for coming in and enlightening us. And I think, you know, certainly something as common as the as you mentioned, the undescended testicle issue is certainly of concern. And clearly, you know, you're, you're um, zero, zeroing in on some very, very highly specialized problems. I want to thank you so much for coming in and, and enlightening all of us. Well, thank you again. Thank you for having My me. My guest has been Dr. Matthew Mason. He's assistant professor of pediatric urology, specializing in pediatric urology problems. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Hippocrates was a Greek physician from the golden age of Pericles. Today, we know him as the man honored at medical school graduations when new physicians take the Hippocratic Oath. This promises to keep the welfare of the patient at the forefront of every doctor's practice. Poet Michael Salzman, a former chair of neurosurgery at the University of Maryland, reminds readers that Hippocrates emphasized caring for the patient, not merely treating him. Like Hippocrates, Salzman's speaker sees and seeks a commonality with his patient. Here is his short poem, The Little Hippocrates Knew. Dear patient, writer, sailor, Though in your eyes I live my former life, as a tree gone bare in winter seems itself if still alive, or a woman round with child prepares to expel her possibilities, we are more alike than before, and no white coat of mine can attach humility or wear the badge of the perplexed enough. We too, captain and crew, on the same voyage. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink On Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we explore some new techniques for knee and hip replacements done robotically, plus the future of rural primary care medicine from a father and son team, and a new program to address the misuse of stimulants by college students. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.